thought about a lot of things this week, um, and they all seemed to, and they all sort of came together um, around uh, um, just a piece of a, a piece of a news broadcast that I saw following the tornado in Indiana. Did you see the tornado in Indiana? You know about that there was a tornado in Indiana. It touched down. It was devastating and just took down a whole piece of a community. I used to live in the Midwest in Kansas in the late 1950s. We used to run to the local church when they saw tornadoes in the neighborhood because they, we lived in very kind of flimsy housing, not in not in uh, a, a trailer park that, but but still without crawl spaces and without basements and. The sirens would go off when you were meant to run to the church and stay in the basement. But they're very devastating, those tornadoes. And uh, they interviewed uh, grandparents uh, talking about the fact that uh, uh, waiting outside a hospital to see if uh, their grandson was going to survive. And um, the grandson's parent, who was their child, had died. The grandchild's sibling uh, had died, and uh, they were, they they said, you know, he's the one hope we have, uh, and uh, I was so touched. I mean, I I didn't know what to make of it. I, I couldn't figure out how they were standing on their feet to say that uh, that their loss was already so devastating. You know, so how could they? I, I was happy for them in a certain sense that they could put their mind on he might make it. Uh, that they still had that piece of them alive. They, I, I thought how much we want for our own people to live, to survive, and how much we prefer. Um, I went to an extraordinary service over the weekend. Um, it's called the, Rede- uh, the Redemption of the Firstborn. Very few people do it. It's a... Uh, it's a um, uh, little-known Jewish uh, ritual of um, the 30-day birthday of uh, a baby boy if it's the firstborn of its mother. It goes way back to temple days where if your firstborn was a male, you had to offer it to the temple for temple service. And if you didn't want to, you had to redeem it and pay the priests a certain amount. Nobody does it anymore. Children are named on the eighth day when they're circumcised in a certain boy children in a certain ritual way and given their name. And it's not much done. But there is a little ceremony where someone representing the priest reads his formula to, in the service and the father of the child responds and the whole ceremony takes five minutes, three minutes actually. But the parents chose to make a big party about it and invited all their friends and relatives. And really it was a party rejoicing the birth of this child. And uh, it's a great it's a great and healthy, wonderful little boy who slept through the whole thing. But they read this arcane ritual. And so people got together and drank and punch and ate food and uh, visited. And all of a sudden they said, okay, we're going to do it now. So in the middle of this whole convivial atmosphere of laughing and talking and visiting and no one seriously thinks this child is going to be co-opted for you know. um, but all of a sudden these two people read the service and 
this old man representing the tradition of the said uh, reads a service which says which do you prefer to offer to give away your firstborn son the issue of your mother's of his mother's womb or redeem him for five shekels as you are required to do by Torah it's a line from Exodus it's Exodus verse 12 uh, chapter 12 verse 3 and the father responds i prefer to redeem my child that's really the whole but you know he got all choked up and started to cry you know and no one's it, it was very touching to me because it's an arcane service nobody really thought that this child needed to but all of a sudden when you say i prefer to redeem this child the father then gave this old man five susan b anthony dollars because we don't deal in shekels anymore and because they wanted to make a feminist statement on behalf of the mother and so they gave five susan b anthony silver dollars which this older man in the community after the ceremony said you know my father has been doing this ceremony in sonoma county since 1930 as a representative of this lineage and it was always his way to double the sum that the father paid and give it back to the father and the child at the end of the ceremony and the whole thing took 3 minutes but my hair stands on end when i tell you about it because all of a sudden in the middle of all this conviviality and partying about this child we suddenly make a statement this baby is really precious to me and i was thinking how much the child of those the grandchild of those people may he live was precious to them i have three friends now really quite gravely ill and i realize how precious they are to me the line in the dhammapada is whoever recognizes impermanence ceases to be contentious that it just transforms your heart that if you realize the people in the, that they interviewed in the trailer park said you know went to sleep we had no idea that uh even if the sirens had gone off that many of them had those little devices that you have that are um um alarm devices that you can buy i've seen them on tv since that go off if there are tornado activity in the area but so where would these people go it's a flat area you know you, you don't know where you're safe tornado goes down one line could pass by here and the gift shop could remain standing it's not a is often not a very wide swath and that realization that you don't know when you go to sleep if you're going to get up if we thought about would change really the way that we live today that's what that line about whoever recognizes impermanence ceases to be contentious she told me the story this morning can i tell about having gone to sleep in her home in san diego 2 years ago 2 years ago and having a wildfire run up the canyon and waking up to see flames outside and just making it out and having the house burned down and 11 of her neighbors didn't make it out you don't know you don't know I think to myself when you hear those stories it an, an interrupted life um we're always expecting to get up tomorrow you know there's a line from William Saroyan who said 
uh, on his deathbed, I knew that everyone was to die, but truthfully, I thought I would be the exception. Yeah, that, that, this is a poem sent to me by my friend Tamara, if I can find the beginning of it. Uh, wait a minute. I need to have the beginning of it because it's a story. This is not it. Wait a minute. Well, that'd be a weird thing if it isn't here. Let me just see. Tamara is one of the founders of New York Insight, a friend of mine for many... Ah, here it is. A friend of mine for many years. She is now in the middle of chemotherapy for a recurrence of ovarian cancer. She wrote this on October 30th of this year. Um... Uh, he said, we set the clock back last night, so I made good use of the extra hour gained today. I sat on my bench and meditated for twice as long as I usually do. Early in my sitting, the first line of one of Emily Dickinson's poems came to me. Forever is composed of nows. My forever of nows in this sitting was composed mostly of tears. When I began to practice 16 years ago, I was surprised how often and how quickly tears flowed. Quite often, I was unable to connect my tears to anything in my conscious awareness. Soon, I stopped trying to. Two or three years into my practice, I was aware that fewer sittings were accompanied with tears. I reminded myself that that was then, and this is now. When I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer, the tears flowed again when I sat. I knew why. I was at times shocked, angry, sad, and depressed. I could no longer rest in the idea that death was so far in my future that I and my loved ones had no need to think or worry about it now. I was at times shocked, frightened, angry, sad, and depressed that my insurance policy for a long, healthy life, my healthy diet, regular exercise, daily meditation, practice decades of therapy, was not an insurance policy after all. Overarchingly, tears flowed because I was now aware that my sense of security was an illusion. My mind tricked me. I thought that the constancy of 60 years of good health, albeit my entire family's sensitive digestive tract, apart from my family's sensitive digestive tract, made it solid, permanent. I didn't think I went so far as the author William Soroyan, who on his deathbed said, I knew that everyone was to die, but truthfully I thought I was the exception. Today when I sat, 15 months after the original diagnosis, three months after the recurrence, and five days after my fourth chemo of six, I sat as soon as I could because I had the shakes. My free-falling, arrow-slinging, storytelling mind only made me shakier and shakier. I had the presence of mind to ask my favorite question. It's the question that continues to be the stabilizing and sustaining lifeline of my practice because it brings me back to the present moment. The question, what's happening right now? That's what mindfulness is about. What's happening right now? When we sat earlier and I said, try to bring your attention to the breath, that's to calm the mind down enough to be able to say, what's happening right now? That's the mind mostly, uh, we'll go on with tomorrow. 
And the answer that came to me was fear and aversion. Aversion arising to the shakes made worse by my mind. I was overwhelmed and confused and breathing shallowly. Energy was happening, and very unpleasant energy at that. I sat with the energy. The energy became my primary focus of attention. I sat with the faith of all my years of practice. I sat with faith and trust and confidence that I could come to a place of ease. I felt vibrating, pulsating, cascading, roaming. Ah, Tears flowing, warm tears, plump tears, tears moving down both cheeks. Right tear reaches chin first. Wet face, wet neck, damp collar, unpleasant Attention drowning in past, future, past, future, future, past, future, past. Help. Begin again. Compassion. What's happening right now? Ah. Still alive. Ah. Nose running. Nostrils tickling. Plop. Wet upper lip. Mm. Salty. Ah. Smile, breath breathing me, tears crying me, no me, no breath, no tears, no breather, no crier, no separation, pleasant moment, present moment, forever moment. Tomorrow is one of my three close friends with serious illness now. You know, the thing with serious illness and the way the mind really gets frightened and projects and fights with what's happening is that life is a serious illness. You know, that... Uh, that it just gets ex- exaggerated when when we get uh, when we really hear the news that our lives may end sooner than we imagined. But when you think about it, that movement to rest in this moment, say, okay, this moment is okay. Not only that, but this moment is just what it is, and it's always now. You know, the the many futures that the mind projects are just thoughts. It's always now. This is the only time we are ever alive, now. It's hard to hold that. The mind gets so startled with the news of something. You have the news that you have a serious illness. You can't just say, well, now I'm all right. This minute is fine. You have to do things, you have to consult, you have to take certain steps. (coughs) It's hard to take all those steps and still remember that this is now. You don't know. I remember when my father was first diagnosed with his cancer, uh, and uh, I took him to his first uh, appointment with the cancer specialist, 
And at the time, the cancer that he had now has a treatment, but at the time it didn't. And uh, it had the, it it has something that will keep it. From, it, it it was always fatal at that time, and now it's not. But uh, I remember the doctor saying to him, um, in order to, I, I suppose, to be as straight with him as he could, or clear, he said, uh, "You know, how are you going to die of this?" And when we left at the end of the appointment, my father said he shouldn't have said that to me, because he doesn't know. I could get run over this afternoon. Or, you know, uh, uh, you know uh, he doesn't know, really. And, and the point is that we never know, actually. That we think, I don't have that disease, but, you know, the people in the trailer park didn't have any disease. And uh, we, I, I think it's an illusion of the mind that protects itself. As my friend Tamara said, say, well, I exercised and I this and I that and I did the other and I never smoked, so... You know, and I'm not overweight, and I didn't aggravate myself, and uh, so I'll be fine. But you know, you don't know, you know, and which doesn't mean that we shouldn't be taking good care of ourselves. But if you don't know, the the only thing that not knowing really makes different for me is it it absolutely electrifies me into thinking use now right. I I I, I more and more think to myself. This is the only time I have today. This is the only shot I get at today. Mm-hmm. This is the only time I get to have this hour. How do I want to do it? And in this moment, if I have a choice, if I catch myself thinking some recriminative thought, some not good thought about somebody, I think to myself, do you want to do this with your mind for this minute or you want to do something else? And it's really helpful to me. So I can either continue this indignant line of thought or not and what if this is the last hour that I'm alive do I want to spend it in indignation about who did me wrong and what kind of a letter I shouldn't have done that I told you the story last week I won't tell it again about the auntie care you know and uh, I thought to myself it was such a it was such a the people who didn't hear it not to not to feel it you missed it it's a story about having done a business deal in in uh, 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 in France and bought an antique bed that turned out to cost way more than I thought it than I had committed to for a variety of reasons and uh, the business of getting over the indignation it wasn't fair it wasn't fair but it was what was happening you know and uh, and the the particular meeting with the auntie care, um, who and I expressed myself in my most elegant and polite French and explained why I thought it wasn't you know maybe she could redress this, and I got all finished and said you know we felt so badly we'd had so many good dealings with her before and we were left with bad feelings, and she leaned over to me as if she was genuinely concerned, and she said oh madame, bad feelings are really bad for you. You should put them down. It's in the past. These things happen. Let it go. Look to the future. It's it, 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 just like that. It was, a, it was a great. It was a worth it. It was worth it. I tried to recreate. Mijo, I tried to recreate yesterday. I was writing. I tried to recreate the conversation in French. Because that's what she said. I remember it exactly that she said that way. But uh, and I tried to say it back to myself in French. I wasn't sure I got it. But 
uh, how would she say, how would she have said, you need to let go of this or you need to put it down? What, what would she have said? Yeah, that's it. Uh, you need to let this go. Um, these things pass. Yeah, these things happen. Sarive. Exactly, Sarive. <laughs> but that's exactly it. I, I thought about it. That's about the, the wisest piece of Dharma in the world. Sarive, everything happens. My friends who are sick, they think to themselves, you know, when they think, to, why me? Because it, it happens to people that people get cancer. Some people get this and some people get that. And it's not it's not personal. It's it's sad, but you know, sarin. And to be able to really get that saves the whole indignation, which is so painful. The indignation is painful. The indignation is painful. The anger that comes with it is painful. It shouldn't be like that. It is like that in a world. There was an article in the New York Times. I have two that I want to tell you about. There was one the other day. Uh, Called Courage in Cancerland, and it's a it's a it's a, it's a just a, an, an essay about two um, books recently published. One by Marjorie Williams. Uh, Marjorie Williams died uh, just recently. She had cancer detected in two thousand and one. She was a writer, well known. She uh, published. Uh, uh, she wrote for Vanity Fair and elsewhere about people like Barbara Bush and Vernon Jordan and Richard Darman. She wrote with piercing perceptiveness about uh, about people, that she was a realist. And uh, cancer was detected in 2001 when Williams was 43. As the sonogram revealed mysterious blobs throughout her abdomen, she asked her doctor, is there a case to be made against my freaking out now? And yet, as she describes the course of her disease in an essay in her posthumous book, The Woman at the Washington Zoo, she never did freak out. She chronicles her disease with the same relentless realism and goes on. And David Brooks clearly is, I think, in this article, favoring the relentless realism, stiff upper lip. Uh, And it's it's actually quite... uh, quite uplifting. She says at the end uh, uh, she left uh, a family, children. I am now, after a long struggle, surprisingly happy in the crooked, sturdy little shelter I've built in the wastes of cancer land, she wrote in a journal. Only a moral idiot could feel entitled in the midst of such a life to complete exemption from bad fortune. That it's an awareness of this happens to everybody. But then she goes, he goes on, and, and it's, it's, it's uplifting, to talk about Joan Didion's recent book, The Year of Magical Thinking. So I see people have read that. Did you read it? <coughs> Didion suffered different blows, the death of her husband and uh, daughter. But where Williams was realistic and clinical, Didion found her mind deranged by grief. Uh, in her fragmented impressionistic narrative, he said, so unlike William's matter-of-fact tone, Didion describes a year in which years lost their me- meanings, in which insights came in flashes of dreams, uh, in which everyone, everything that had seemed solid became fluid, 
Didion bobs on the waves of her grief and loses any fixed sense of marriage, children, sanity, and uh, memory. Didion is emotive while Williams was stoical. Didion is postmodern and magical while Williams was uh, a realist. Many people will find themselves more attuned to Didion's sensibility, judging by her book's rapturous reviews. But what is heroic about Williams' story? Williams' story is that despite the vicious trick that her body played on her, she fought to preserve her own agency. So I thought to myself, when I got finished, because I was annoyed with him for saying, you know, that one way was better than another way. You know, that was, that was, that was the part of it that got me. I thought to myself, everybody is heroic. That you don't get to, you don't get to choose. You don't get to say, I'm going to do this stoically because it'll be easier on everybody around me if I'm a realist and I don't mess this up by being emotional about it. Uh, she, Marjorie Williams could not have done her experience any other way. Joan Didion could not have done her experience another way. You are what you are, really, you know. I talked to our friend Martha, who really has one series of worrisome new bad news is after another. And uh, so I talked to her a lot, and somebody asked me uh, how she was doing. I said, I think she's doing great. I said, you know, really, in terms of dealing with all this stuff, I said, most of the time she's doing great. And then I said, no, no, no. I take it back. I said, all of the time she's doing great. Even when she's not doing great, she's doing great. Because just, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's an, it's a not, I am aware it is not a situation that I can know how it's like because I haven't done it. I can't know. Probably many of you can know how it is to to have a terrible diagnosis in your own body. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I can imagine, but I can't know. I can accompany, (coughs) but I can't know really. But I am sure that everybody does it exactly the way they do it. And they can't, they can't do it another way. There isn't a better or a worse way. I think it's heroic to be able to be doing it in any way and talking about it. I wonder how much practice changes the way that we do challenges like that. Suzuki Roshi said when he was dying, he was the, uh, uh, Roshi, he was the founder of the San Francisco Zen Center. He said, if when I die, I carry on a lot and I struggle, don't worry about that. He said, that's just suffering Buddha. He said, you know, I don't know, I, you know, I hope I do it another way. But if I don't, it's okay. That's just suffering Buddha. Everybody does it the way that they, that they do it. To have a view about this is the right way or this is the wrong way. So then I thought more about views about right way and wrong way, which is why I brought up about what if you knew that half of the people in this room had voted another way from you. Would you wish them any less well? Would you look at the people and say, okay, these are the people who voted with me. Okay, these people I really wish well. These are the people half-hearted well. They shouldn't have so much good fortune as the other. We wouldn't do that. I mean, imagine how your own heart would feel if you did that. That wouldn't. So, likewise, you know, then uh, 
in the New York Times also this week, there's a, a, a an article about, uh, well, I'll read it to you, it's by Nick Kristof, who I like a lot. In this country, in a country dispirited by political mud wrestling, there was a spark of hope the other day, a conference in which liberals discussed international issues with conservative Christians and agreed. The conference, sponsored by Madeleine Albright on the left and Senator Sam Brownback on the right, underscored that we now have a tantalizing opportunity. If only left and right can hold their noses and work together, we can confront some of the scourges of our time, sex trafficking, genocide, religious oppression, prison brutality, on which there is agreement on what needs to be done. Democrats have mostly watched the arrival of evangelicals on the foreign policy scene in the way that Romans regarded the approach of the Visigoths and Vandals, but it's a mistake. The growing engagement of conservative Christians on international issues is welcome because for the first time it has turned the American heartland into a constituency for foreign aid and humanitarian action. It goes on and on about that. But at the end, talking about domestic issues, about prison, the bad conditions in prison, and evangelical leaders standing side by side with Ted Kennedy signing the legislation that will address that. And he says at the end, uh, look, this is Nick Kristof talking about himself, I think that Christian leaders on the right, like Senator Brownback, Frank Wolf in the House, and Chuck Colson, are utterly wrong on many issues. I probably wouldn't vote for them for political office, but I admire them immensely for their humanitarian efforts, and I might vote for them for sainthood. (laughs) And he ends up by saying, next year, Democrats and Republicans will devote millions of dollars to heaping slime on each other. I hope they devote 1% as much energy to cooperating on these issues that they feel the same on. It could make the world a much better place. And he ends by saying, bleeding hearts, which is the epithet usually used for the Democratic Club. Bleeding hearts. Bleeding hearts of the world unite. But I was thinking about that when people really begin to think of, when people, here's here's the the way that my thinking went on it. I thought about um, at the end of retreats, people often say, uh, just before they're about to leave and go home, they say, you know, I've I've so changed in these five days or eight days or ten days or whatever. They said, I feel very vulnerable. uh, I'm afraid to go out in the world, actually, with the whole world out there. How many people here, by the way, have been on a residential retreat? Good. Think about it sometime. You can watch your mind arrive on the first day and um, just in the course of events respond with annoyance. person next to you is chewing too loud in the dining room or eating in too big gulps or something or other. Or the person next to you on the next zafu is blowing their nose too much. It's amazing what the mind can find to irritate about. Somebody comes in late into each meditation sitting and you think, why don't they come on time? My mind was just focused. All of a sudden they bang the door. Nobody bangs the door. you know. Uh, the mind looks. It's, it's just, it's irritated from living in the world. 
So it's sort of like an irritated mind. It comes in, and so it looks around for every possibility to get irritated. We get all kinds of notes about remind people not to clump up the stairs, remind people not to flush the toilets after 10 o'clock at night, remind them this, remind them that. And the notes stop after a few days because without the reminders. Because everybody's mind, which is inflamed from the world, calms down. And people flush the toilets, they flush. You roll, you turn over, you go back to sleep. You know, they, they come in late, they come in late. People blow their nose, you think, oh, too bad, that person has a cold. You know, people start off putting uh, cough drops near people who cough a lot. That instead of being annoyed at them, they give them their cough drops. You know, the, that the heart transforms. And just because that nobody has said anything to them, and we haven't changed anything, it's that everybody's irritated mind from living in the world on this frantic pace calms down a little bit, and their own good heart manifests itself. We're actually kind people, and our minds are just so frayed and tense. So people often say at the end they discover that they begin to feel pleasant about the people that they were annoyed about, and they particularly notice that. They say, this one person, I got over it. And the whole other person doesn't know that there was a drama. And the drama was about they breathed too loud, or you know, it was a, really not a drama. I mean, on the world scene of things of dramas, it's not that person breathed too loud. But people say, you know, I'm afraid to go out in the world because I feel like I am too vulnerable. I've taken off all my... And I, I really want to make a, a, a statement about it. I don't think there's such a thing as too vulnerable. I think that what we're all working on is being too vulnerable. If we would all sit down with each other and talk about all of these things, the the things that we can all agree on, not um, not abusing anybody, having a world where people don't need to sell them their family members to keep going, having a world where the, there's an end of really murdering each other. Nobody wants that. There isn't a political party that's in favor of a, of a world that's havoc. But if we could just sit down and talk to each other and say, look, don't we all want, in the end, want the same things? And not that all much, actually. Lie down in peace, wake up in peace, have enough to eat for that day, have people that we care about that care about us, Somewhere I heard the amount of advertising stimuli that comes in every day, buy this, get this, phone up, do this, do this. It's amazing. So bombarded with the idea of what we might need. In the, in the precepts morning today, we talked about not being um, guided by lust or greed and uh, how to recognize a wholesome desire from a not wholesome desire. And I, I was reminded of, uh, of the story that my friend Sharon Salzberg tells about walking through the old city of Jerusalem. And some of you may know that there's a way in which when you go into the old city within the walls, there's a flight of steps, that a long flight of, of uh, stone steps that's, a, that's a, a street that goes down to the uh, central courtyard of the old city where the western wall is. And that steps are lined by kiosks and people selling stuff and jewelry and and fabrics and spices, all kinds of stuff. And Sharon tells a story about walking down those steps, going down on her way to someplace. 
And uh, the shopkeepers stay out in front of their shops and call your attention and try to call your attention. And she said she walked by and someone said as she went by, come in, come in, I have exactly what you need. <laughs> and she said she could watch that her mind stopped and actually thought to go. But then she thought, how could he know exactly <laughs> what I need? But, but even the, the, the lure of I have exactly what you need is enough to stop the mind. We are so open to this is going to do it for you. This is going to make you happy. This is going to make you okay. This is going to be the additional okay. Mm-hmm. How to keep the mind from being uh, trapped into all the seductions of being angry and held captive by a lust or by an anger, both of which really confuse the mind and make it impossible in this moment to love and to see your life as a blessing. Which I think actually is I'm thinking about that story of the woman who's going to talk about living with disabling arthritis for so many years. Somebody prayed this morning for someone with ALS. People who managed to have very substantial challenges. I talk to Martha practically every day, and we laugh about something or other. How to continue to find what what in the world we can be grateful to be here today about how to see one's life as a blessing. So maybe I'll end by showing a book that I was going to read you the faith verses of the third Zen patriarch, but instead, I just love this. Someone sent it to me. Um, it's called Grandpa's Angel. It was, uh, it's a children's book, and it was uh, published in Germany. Um, and it's a, it's a, I don't know if you'll be able to see it. I'll see if I can show it to you. But uh, it, it was published in German four years ago. It's become a very bestseller there. And it's just about how to see your life in another way. And uh, it just moved me so much. Uh, can you, you won't be able to see. Here's a picture of a person going along with a burden. And there's an angel behind him. Can you, can you see this? Uh, okay, he's got a little angel behind him, but the angel looks like a person, except you know it's wearing, it's got wings and a gown. But the angel behind him is holding up this heavy bag of troubles as he goes through the world. Maybe if you can't see it, I'll read it to you. <clears throat> Here's a little boy coming into a hospital room and saying, "Grandpa loved telling stories." Or maybe it's a bedroom, and you can see Grandpa is very old. And uh, Grandpa says to him, you know, my boy, nothing could ever hurt me. You can see he's an old, old guy. He's grisly. It's a bedpan under the bed. He said, every morning on my way to school, I ran through the town square. You can see that there's a statue of an angel that he is interpreting or he is sensing that that angel is protecting him as he goes across the town square. It took me some reading to realize that this little boy is dressed in knee pants of uh, probably 60 years ago. In the middle of the square stood a large statue of an angel. I never stopped to look at it. I was always rushing, and my book bag was heavy. But you see this angel was hovering over him. Uh, Once I was almost run over by a bus, even though back then there wasn't much traffic. And in the picture, here's a bus comes to a screeching stop, 
and you see that the angel is what stopped the bus. And, you know, I don't know if there are angels that stop buses, but all the time, there's a way of seeing your life as blessed and seeing, that was remarkable. I almost got run over by a bus, but I didn't. Uh, it was a long walk to school, and there were holes in the ground. Here's a hole in the ground. And here he's jumping, and you see that the angel up there is holding him up as he's jumping over. It's a way of putting your life in a context. There were lonely street corners, and see there's some mean-looking guy with a club behind the corner, and the angel is covering that guy's eyes so he can't see him. And some pretty scary geese. So here are geese honking at him, and he's looking like he's not frightened, and this angel is holding a goose with its beak closed so it can't, it can't frighten him. I wasn't afraid. I was always the bravest. I climbed the highest trees. See, he was falling out, and the angel was catching his hat. And dove in the deepest lakes, and you see the angel is keeping him from drowning. Big dogs trembled in front of me, because you see the angel is actually keeping, the, and everybody else is running away. I had enemies, and I fought them. Sometimes I lost, but not too often. The angel actually is uh, holding him back from getting in a fight, the angel is not helping him fight. The angel is helping him not fight. The angel is actually sitting aside and scowling a little bit when he's fighting. I was never a coward, although I didn't know how dangerous times were then. And then you realize that this is in the 1930s or 40s. My friend Joseph knew he was frightened. One day he disappeared. I never saw him again, which made me very sad. And you see that this is deportation of people from a German city, and the angel over here is crying. I was slowly growing up, but life wasn't getting any easier. You see, he's a soldier now. I took whatever work I could. He's doing all kinds of work. But the angel is helping him. He's milking cows, and the angel is holding the tail out of the way. And here he's working, laying bricks, and the angel is catching a brick that could have hit him on the head. I wasn't very good at it. You see him actually begging on the street. And then someone comes looking for someone for work, and the angel is pointing to him. Choose him, choose him. I fell in love. I became a father. I built a house. I bought a car. You see he's almost driving off a cliff, but the angel is pushing him up. I became a grandfather, and it's been, all in all, it's been a beautiful life. You see, him, this is a great picture, I have to tell it to you. Here he is standing and playing in the ocean with his grandchild, and uh, there's a shark over here, but the angel is underwater holding the shark. Oh. And when you think about it, every time you go bathing in the sea, if a shark didn't bite you, it could be an angel holding it back from biting you. It's just another way of seeing your life, you know. You can choose to see yourself as blessed or <coughs> even at times if it's a little strange, look, the angel is pushing the rain cloud over so it rains over here, not on him. I've been very lucky. Grandpa was tired and closed his eyes. I left quietly. Outside it was clear and warm. What a beautiful day. You can see that there's an ambulance here and you're figuring that they're maybe taking that grandfather away or he's, the grandfather is dead or dying. And you see that the grandfather's angel has come out of the building and is now following him. It's going to be his angel. 
so is that great? Is that great? So, so actually, I got it as a present. I sent it away. I immediately ordered another one from Amazon. So it's called Grandpa's Angels, and it's by Yuta Bauer, B-A-U-E-R, if you want to get it from Amazon. It's beautiful drawings. Come up and look at it if you want to. And the reason that I liked it so much is that every single time that I go up the, the highway, for instance, and I see a, 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 all of a sudden there's a high, there's a, a, a pile up of traffic and you get annoyed. Oh, I'm going to get home late. And then you think, wait a minute, what's happening? And then you get up there and it's some accident. And then you think, oh, oh they have a few ambulances there. And then you think, oh, who isn't going to go home ever, or who's going to go home a different person? You know, just to end up where you know a little bit where we began. If we actually knew that you never know, you never know when you go to sleep in a trailer park, if you're going to get up in the morning, you never know when we leave here, you know, what bus is going to be where and what car is going to stay in its right lane. I sometimes think when I'm on the highway that it's such an act of faith to drive on the highway, you know, because all the time that we drive, I don't think about it at all. You're depending on everybody to stay in their lanes and behave themselves and to stay alert and you don't know, you know, and then we get to a place and I think about all the blessing that, uh, whether it's angels that's keeping everybody in their lanes or whether it's just the blessing of this day that we made it through and got here. And it, it seems to me that that, that's, that seems so key in being able to think of uh, life as either a minefield that's going to get you any minute or uh, an opportunity to say, well, this day I still have the, the, the now that's forever, the only now that is. And how can I respond in, in this moment so that this moment is, is, you know. I like to tell people that um, the very, very first meditation weekend that I ever spent before I went on a real retreat was in a place that had a little sign, a house in the South Bay that had a sign on the fireplace in the living room. One of those little hokey signs that you buy in national parks. It's on a piece of wood that's all shiny and lacquered, like sisters or friends and all those. Uh, Home sweet home. And this one said, um, life is so difficult, how can we be anything but kind? And I thought to myself, I had a terrible time on that weekend. Everything about it was so hard and strange and disagreeable. And it did not convert me to, you know, I wasn't excited about becoming a meditator, but I was excited about being in a tradition that had on the mantelpiece, life is so difficult, how can we be anything but kind? Mm-hmm. It seems to me like the major and fundamental teaching. So it's a pleasure to be here again. Uh, where is the envelope of the bake sale? Did it make it around? And there, there it is. Uh, I'll bring it next time. If you want to uh, uh, be on that list, but you have neither money nor checkbook, you can write your name and write I O U. So I'll just, you know, I will send the check for thirty boxes. I think that's fabulous. By the way, that we are supporters of St. Bede's and that we get in their newsletter as our friends and we have supported some very good causes together over the years and I'm very proud of us for doing it. So one one big breath.
I'll do it with the eyes open. Look around. Have your eyes mean have a good week and take care of yourself. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on November 9, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio Archive. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.